So hey guys, thank you for listening to that little ad there from the folks at Anchor. They are actually the ones that handle the uh, the distribution of all my podcasts, and I appreciate them a bunch. And thanks you so much for listening. Um, you can also find uh, other podcasts and other things that are happening on my YouTube channel at HVAC Reefer Guy. Uh, you can also email me if you have any questions or comments or concerns at HVAC Reefer Guy. That's H V A C R E F E R Guy G U I at gmail.com. And I, pr- I promise to answer every single email and comment. So today we're going to be branching completely in a different direction. Um, if you guys don't know anything about me, I live in Phoenix, Arizona. And by accident, my wife and I drove down to, to Tombstone. It wasn't by accident, but we drove to Tombstone to spend the afternoon in Tombstone. And my wife had to use the restroom. And we got to the far end of town. And there was a door that said Tombstone's Visitor Center. And I walked in the front door of this beautiful all-wood floor building. And there sat a lady who behind like a bank teller type thing with the you know old style bank teller where you would make your deposits and stuff and there sat a lady and I went to ask her about the bathrooms and where you know blah 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 and what was supposed to be a minute or two of of idle chat ended up being about 40 minutes of discussion before the day continues to get longer. And I said, where can I learn more about Tombstone? And she says, well, I've written a book. And if you go across the street, they'll have the book for sale. Well, that lady ended up being Joyce Aros. And Joyce Aros is a writer. And she has written the book, Murdered on the Streets of Tombstone. She's also written a book called The Cochise County Cowboys. And both books can be found at going to gooseflats.com. And that's G-O-O-S-E, flats, F-L-A-T-S, gooseflats.com. And you can find all of her work there. And I'm super excited. This has been, I would say, several months that we've been talking about doing this podcast. And Joyce is here. And and welcome, Joyce. Thank you for showing up. Well, thank you very much for asking me. I'm looking forward to this. So... You you you're an historian that's working in a visitor center in Tombstone, and obviously you weren't born there. Uh, you know I don't want to spend a ton of time, but how uh-huh. did you end, how did you end up in Tombstone? Well, I don't have a very interesting background. I was born and raised in Canada on a farm, and um, uh, over the years, my father and I when I was out of school in the summer. Uh, we would come down and tour the Southwest, just Jim and I, and of course we always came to Tombstone. You can't go to Tombstone and look at all these great old buildings and not be interested in the story behind them. And it just developed, and as a kid I uh, started reading every Western book I could, and of course I watched every Western movie I could. And um, I really thought uh, Wyatt Earp was the greatest hero that ever walked. However, uh, years later, when I moved down to the United States and uh, moved to actually to Tucson, Arizona, um, I met my husband, a Mexican cowboy, and really one of the old-time vaqueros. And uh, he was um, he was raised on a ranch. Now his family 
interestingly, he was the youngest boy out of 23 children. And uh, these are old-time ranchers. They lived right on the border of Petery. And uh, every one of those boys was a real rough old-time cowboy. So uh, when I married into that family, it became very interesting because then I learned about old-time cowboys because these people, some of these boys never went to town in a year. They had no interest. And they lived just like they did in the 1880s. And I got a whole different look at what cowboys were like. And they were quite different from the ones that I'd seen in the Hollywood movies. And quite different from the ones I read about when I read all about Tombstone and, and Wyatt Earp and all that stuff. And, and I planted. And uh, I began to wonder what what's going on here because these guys, uh, you know, they're, they're a tough bunch. And... Um, they come from a time period where, yes, you live out in the middle of nowhere. When things happen, you have to make your own decisions. You can't call a lawyer. You can't call the sheriff. And so I began to realize that's how it was with the earlier cowboys that I had been reading about. So that caught me wanting to know more about them and compare the lifestyles. And that's how I started in on the, uh, really looking at the history and doing research. And it was kind of awkward at first because I really didn't know where to start. But I finally got on to it and uh, just couldn't get enough to read. I just ignored everything. And I found it absolutely fascinating because I approached it more from the look of uh, their culture, their background, where they came from, why they thought and acted the way they did. And uh, that made it so much more interesting. So when, when you started working, you know, through the cowboy history, and, and I'm, you said, you know, that you don't have a very interesting, you know, history about how you ended up in Tombstone. Your, your husband, husband being one of 23 children and the youngest, that's, <laughs> that's interesting alone. That's a whole nother story. Um, oh, and, it is. <laughs> and, and being from Canada and, and traveling. When, when you were a little girl, I mean, without saying your age, when you were a little girl, when did you first come to Tombstone? Uh, probably when I was uh, in the mid-teens. I'd be in the mid-teens. And I don't mind telling you my age. I'm 82 now. <laughs> so that would have that would have been like Tombstone. I, when, when Wyatt passed, the, diff, the time difference from Wyatt passing, and, and maybe Josephine may have still been alive, was was pretty close to when you started visiting Tombstone. Yes, actually, when I was in my early teens, uh, quite a few of these people were still alive. Of course, I had no idea of that at the time, but uh, yes, a number of them were. But when you got to Tombstone, and you were looking at Tombstone, those people were there. I just, it's, it. I didn't know that until just now, and I'm, I'm. It's, it's crazy to think that you are walking around in a town where a lot of the people may have actually been there during the gunfight, it may have still been alive. Yes, and when Walter Noble Burns uh, wrote his book, uh, Tombstone, An Iliad of the Southwest, which was the first book on Tombstone, um, he wrote it in the 1920s, and he came out here to Tombstone and got to meet a lot of people here and talk to them, people who had known all of these people because they were still alive in the 1920s. And so um, that's where he got a lot of his background. Wow. 
So you're you're in with your husband. You're living now in the American Southwest. Mm-hmm. When did you make the move to move to Tombstone from Tucson? And and did, was that the point to where you said, or or was there something that happened where you said, I've got to write a book? Oh, well, no, I was nowhere near there because uh, when I married my husband and lived on the cattle ranch, um, life was hard. It was hard work. I, You know, I, I had been a spoiled city girl, and I married this rough cowboy, and I ended up, it took me six months to learn how to use the wood stove properly. Um, I still cook with cast iron and nothing else. <laughs> and um, then I had seven children. And um, we uh, worked on two or three different ranches in between. We lived we lived a few months city life in uh, in Tucson and so on. And then eventually we we divorced. And um, I actually moved to Hawaii, the Big Island of Hawaii, with all my children. And uh, they all grew to adulthood there. And then one by one, they came out through the mainland because there's not much opportunity in, in Hawaii. And uh, once the last one did, then I got on the plane and I came out too. And that's when I decided that I wanted to live in Tombstone. And now I had the opportunity to do it without having any complaints from the kids. They're all grown. So moving forward, you you begin to research, obviously the book, and Murdered on the Streets of Tombstone. And, mm-hmm. and you know, you can get that book at gooseflats.com, gooseflats.com. I, I want to talk about what happened about, and I've read the book several times, about what happened with the OK Corral, but I don't want to talk about it from the typical way, which is to start at the beginning and, then, and why yeah. it ended up where he did and Doc and, and Josephine and all the players. A lot of people don't know what happened at the very end. And and there was a and, and you explained it even when we spoke. I remember our conversation. But you explained it about the indictments and how Wyatt actually represented himself and Spicer acquitted him. And then it it's so fascinating. So let's start off from that perspective at the very end, and kind of work our way backwards, because we know about the OK Corral. When, uh-huh. when did all this happen? Uh, obviously, we know about the about um, the acquittal. Let's start from that point. So where do you want to well, go? Go ahead. Where do you want to go in the story? Because I think it's fascinating as to how that happened at the very end, and then work our way into the gunfight, and what happened to it, and then work our way. Now, I don't think we're going to be able to cover it all, in in a fifty five minute span, but mm-hmm. I think the I think there's a lot of information that needs to be shared and discussed and and spoken about in regards to the acquittal and the very end of it. Well, I think uh, one of the things that I found fascinating was when I got into um, looking up all the information on the um, uh, the hearing, because it was not a trial, it was a hearing. Um, the hearing took place in order to establish whether or not they should have a trial. So um, uh, I found it desirable and intriguing to, pre- 
to uh, actually pursue a more in-depth examination of the witness testimony, because there were over 30 witnesses who were involved in this hearing. There was a lot of information, and uh, once I start going through it, uh, I just thought, how did they ever end up getting a fit? It made no sense to me. So I started um, going, taking each witness. We have the um, the copies of the witness uh, testimonies for each of these witnesses. The problem is that over the years, they've been hacked up, and some of it's a little bit missing and so on. And so you have to be really, really diligent about going through it, and you have to apply common sense and reason as well. And so going through these, um, I just found it fascinating because uh, it was clear to me from the witness testimony the vast majority of witnesses found the earth at fault, and they described it very clearly, and yet still Judge Spicer still found them innocent of the charges, and so they were not held over for trial. The whole thing was let go. And it was unfortunate. Now, Ike Clanton did try three times. He's the one who started this. He tried three times to go through the um, the, uh, arrangement of the law to have these men charged for murder of his brother and his two friends, and um, he lost on all three counts, um, which is rather interesting because, you know, people like to think that maybe he was the guy who was trying to uh, kill the Earths whenever he got a chance. Not at all. He was trying to do it lawfully, and it was uh, quite interesting. He was quite a different man than, uh, than people have been led to believe, and, and I found that equally interesting. I hope I'm not wandering off subject too much, but I get babbling sometimes. No, I mean it. What surprised me when when I read your book, it it forced me to open my eyes and explore even more. For example, after the hearing was over with and the acquittal, and where they found out that they didn't need a trial and the Earps were innocent, Spicer didn't stay in office much longer and ended up out in the open desert in Ajo. Um, yeah. And which was a tragic story because they know that he died there, but they I don't I don't think they ever found the body. No, there doesn't seem to be any detail. It's just kind of like he wandered out into the desert and disappeared, sort of. Um, he was rather... Um, I don't know how to explain Spicer uh, because there's not a lot of information about him other than to follow the court hearing, the testimonies, and his way of handling the court. Um, when he does, you can see the bias that he leans so heavily toward the earth. And um, he did not... Uh, he did not have a tolerance for the other side at all. And it's very open and very clear, and so I always have this hard time understanding when I read this over and all the uh, witness testimony, I wonder why so many people want to believe everything the earth says, though it's gospel right out of their mouth. They don't question it. If Wyatt Earp or Virgil Earp said it, then it must be true. That means automatically everybody else is lying. 
And that always amazes me. Well, I think that, you know, the Earps were, um, they were lawmen, they were, they were a product of the times, they, um, you know, they, the brothers were strong, they were independent, um, the brothers came first, I mean, that's said over and over again. When, yes. and, and, and honestly, he was a tall man. I mean, you don't, at that period... Wyatt being over six feet tall was was tall and slender for a man yeah. at that period, and he that the height mm-hmm. probably carried a lot of dominance and very and he was a strong man. I mean, not strong physically, he was just a strong man. Yes, he had a strong personality, and he was quiet, and uh, I think uh, spoke with authority. The interesting thing is when you examine uh, each of the brothers. Um, James Earp is very interesting because James Earp stayed kind of quiet in the background. He, uh, um, was a bartender here. But I've always felt, and of course I can't prove this, I've always felt he was kind of the brains of the outfit because after the Civil War, apparently James Earp ended up over in, uh, uh, Deadwood, um, Montana. And, uh, there, he apparently had a gang and did the stage robbery and even did a little time in jail for it. So, uh, he's, he's quite a character. He's not, he was not a gunman because he had a bad shoulder wound from the war. And so, uh, he, he handled things a little differently. But I always got the impression he was kind of the brains behind them. Uh, Virgil was a different kind of person. Virgil, uh, he was fairly tall, too, and I don't think quite as tall as, as Wyatt, but he was stockier, heavier built, and Virgil was more of a thug. Uh, he would use his fist quite, re- quite readily. In fact, he got into several different situations where he beat somebody nearly senseless, and uh, he lost position up in Prescott uh, because of misbehaving in that manner while he wore a badge. So he was a little more of a thug, kind of a bull in the china shop. He didn't think things out as clearly as the others. And he really was the one who triggered this whole thing at the OK Corral. So let's let's and dig in the let's dig into the last part of, okay. of what happened. Now there's the there's the OK Corral. Whether you mm-hmm. believe it was a murder or not, doesn't matter. I mean everybody has their difference of opinion. Fine. Exactly. Um, there it went to trial, and let's take today's podcast and think a little bit about um, the trial process, the multiple witnesses. There was a young lady in a shop, I think she was a dresser or a baker, who yes. saw some things. There was a gentleman that you had written about that was kind of in and out of the process. Um, he showed up as a witness, but people don't know how. Um, at least that's what I got. Oh, Mr. Phil. Mr. Yes, right. Mr. Phil. And then there was, which I find totally fascinating, the Inquisition paperwork. The Inquisition paperwork was all written in longhand and somehow went from the courthouse to Prescott and then down to Bisbee. Is that correct? Uh-huh. Apparently, but today the original... Um Paperwork doesn't exist. Now, the inquest does, not the hearing. Okay. Yeah, because first of all, there was an inquest. 
And uh, the inquest, um, uh, let me see how many witnesses were those on the, uh, um, let me just pop this up on my computer. Okay, so for the inquest, you had nine witnesses. And uh, that, that exists today. It was written in longhand, and they only found it a few years ago on the shelf, mind you. Uh, nobody knew it still existed, the original inquest, handwritten. And so that does exist. The um, the actual original record of the hearing with the 30 witnesses, um, to the best of our knowledge, does not any longer uh, but the exist. Inquest, the inquest still remains, and that's the one that went from, yes. went from Tombstone. The paperwork ended up back in... Prescott, because it was still the territorial capital at that time, and then uh-huh. and then ended up in the final years until two years ago in Bisbee. Yes, and how that happened, I don't know, because apparently um, it had been there for quite some long time, and um, in cleaning off some shells, uh, there they tripped across it. So you you wonder how that happened and how it just got stuck on the shelf. So let's break down a little bit the okay. the end result the the not obviously the the inquisition let's break that part down and the witnesses and how it didn't happen I mean we have um about 30 minutes 35 minutes to break it down let's talk about that mm-hmm. so how did that process go about Okay well um the uh, the county coroner held the uh the inquest of course and uh, he had nine witnesses, Johnny Bean, the sheriff, uh, a man named Coleman, Ike Clanton, uh, Martha King, who was the housewife who was in the meat market, and um, uh, several others. And um, uh, what he compiled just in that indicated that this was uh, a pretty quick done done deal as far as the Earths were concerned. So, um, how do you want to, uh, let's see, I think one of the interesting ones is Martha King. Now, Martha King, if you like, um, in the inquest, it brings out her testimony, I'll, I'll shorten it for you. Currently, Martha King was a local housewife. She headed to Bowers Meat Market to get meat at the time. And when she went inside, uh, she saw that the people inside were all kind of excited and talking about something. And um, so she went and looked out the door to see what was going on. And she saw the three Earth Brothers and Doc Holliday coming towards the meat market down the walkway. And, um, and so the apparently Bowers Meat Market had two doors, one on each side, probably about eight feet apart. And um, when they approached the building, what she did is she leaned out and saw them, and then they passed her, and so she wanted to know what was going on. And she was quite intrepid, actually, considering she's a Victorian housewife. And then she ran to the other door to be there as they passed the second door. When they passed the second door, Doc Holliday, she said, passed in front of her, and when she leaned out, he was only about two feet from her. And the man next to him, which was Virgil Earth, turned to him 
and the others and said, let them have it. And Doc Holliday answered him and said, okay, and then they passed on down. Now, a lot of writers today don't like that. They, um, they don't want to accept the idea that Virgil actually instructed them to go ahead and let them have it. So they like to say, well, Martha King didn't hear it all. Probably he really said, if they go for their guns, let them have it. But when you go over her testimony very carefully, and she repeated herself, and she was very clear, she heard nothing else. That was exactly what they said. And then when they did, it frightened her, and she stepped back inside. So that's a strong piece of testimony. But what interests me is the prosecution never followed up on it. And the prosecution bothers me a lot in this hearing and in the um, uh, uh, the inquest because there's many times like this where, now, if you were a prosecution lawyer and this was your uh, witness up there and she said something like that, wouldn't you want to say, wait a minute, let's develop this. What do you mean? Are you sure you heard all of this and so on? They didn't. They sat on their hands, and they never said a word. And so it was passed by, and apparently Spicer chose to completely ignore her testimony. And maybe that was because she was a Victorian housewife, and it was the time period, and they didn't give women the positions they have today or, you know, take them seriously. But that's one example. Now, you mentioned also Abby Borland, the teamster uh, who lived across the Correct. And she, yeah, and she also um, was called in as a witness, and she uh, was sitting, her house was directly across from the vacant lot where all this took place, and she was sitting in her window, hand sewing, and uh, saw the, uh, the ranchers, I call them the ranchers, they like to refer to them as the cowboys because they want to associate them with outlaws, but these guys were all legitimate ranchers. And so the ranchers were across, standing in the vacant lot, and she saw the earthwork come up, and she said, she recognized Doc Holliday, the man with the long coat, and she said he walked up to the man holding the horse, which we know now is Frank McLowry, and took out his gun and jabbed him in the belly, stepped back a few feet, and then shot him. Frank immediately staggered back because he shot in the gut. And he's holding his horse, and he turns and staggers out in the street, pulling the horse along with him. Now, he's staggering directly toward her, out in the middle of the street. He's just been shot. She's sitting at her window watching, and she never mentioned that. She never mentioned it at all. Um, then she says she jumped up and left immediately, and she said everybody was shooting. All of them were shooting. Um, and yet, she's trying to give the impression that she left. Now, how would she know everybody was shooting? Actually, that was not the case. She also described Virgil as putting out both his hands up into the air to say, stop, don't do this. Um, yes, no one else saw him do that. No one saw him raise his arm. So there's some interesting little things like that in each witness. And the problem is, with each witness, when they said something like this, 
the prosecution did not jump forward and develop it. If they had developed three or four of these witnesses like this, they would have had the case. For example, um, the one witness was a friend of the uh, cowboys and also knew the Earps very well. He was a local gambler. And uh, when the Earps were on the corner of Fourth and um, Allen Street, gathered in their little uh, group there talking about what to do when they were examining their guns, checking their guns and everything. And he, along with the rest of the little crowd gathered around, was listening to them. Then he said, and this is what he said in court, he said, I headed down Allen Street to get to the vacant lot because I had to warn Billy Platton to get out of town. Now, why would he only be wanting to warn Billy Platton to get out of town when he knew all of them? He knew them all well. And the prosecution lawyers never jumped up and said, why are you concerned about Billy Clanton's safety? What did you hear? What did you learn? They never did it. They didn't touch it. And so there's, with almost every witness, there's little things like that that have never been developed. And these are the things that I've been trying to bring out, to stress in my book. And so you have a prosecution that's hearing all this, and, yes. and, and I'm going to ask you a personal question. Okay. okay. Not not personal, but what you're feeling. Well, I know. <laughs> Why do you think that the prosecution never did anything with the information I, that was well, testified to them? Yeah. He did. They they did absolutely nothing. Do you think that? And I, and again, this is me speculating. So anybody listening to this, this is not fact. This is just an air conditioning guy speculating. Do you think that he was in some way maybe in it with Spicer, that no matter what they say, it's going to be an innocent verdict? I think probably they threw the case. That isn't my thought. This is what I, uh, like you, I have to tell the audience that uh, this is not fact. Except the supporting thought is that when... Um, uh, Will McLowry, the McLowry brothers, uh, older brother came and joined the group, uh, the prosecution table. Uh, they tried to discourage him and they said, you know, you could get killed doing this. And they indicated that they were afraid. And he was really upset with that because, of course, the brothers had been killed. He wanted his men dealt with. And so that may well support the idea that they just didn't want to stick their neck out. It's almost like organized crime. Very <laughs> similar, know, isn't it? In, in a weird way, and and I'm reading a new book by a, by a writer who is talking about Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson in Dodge City. And it's actually mentioned okay. in the book that it was some of the earliest forms of organized crime. But, you know, in the way that, that cowboys worked with each other, and not cowboys like in the movie, but just you know men on right. the, men on the open range, um, mm-hmm. you know did business, and it was a product of their time. It's not that they were bad people; it was a product of their time. I don't think that the cowboys, and and as much as they want to be portrayed, were bad people. I think they were a product of their time. You mentioned earlier about the cowboys were honest ranchers, but 
At the same time, there's numerous mentions about how all parties, Clantons, Earps, everybody, were going down into Mexico and bringing cattle up across the border. And that's Mm -hmm. not legitimate ranchers. Um, But but again, it was the product of their times. So you have yes, and that's 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 the thing to consider because you see now, for example, um, most of these guys, uh, the ranchers, uh, they are Democrats, and also most of them come from the from the south. A lot of them are survivors of the Civil War. They are accustomed in the South to black slavery. And living in the Southwest here desert, they didn't see Mexicans as much different. And so you have to take those things into consideration. The fact that to them, so if you stole from a Mexican, so what? He's a Mexican, you know? They, they had that attitude. That was their <clears throat> mindset, their, their cultural background. So it's not that they're necessarily wicked people. It's just the way they develop and, and the way they look at life. Also, they're out in the middle of nowhere, like we were talking before. If a situation comes up, they can't call a lawyer. They don't have a cell phone. They have got to make the decision as to how to handle it right now. And sometimes the only way to do it is violence. Well, and, and I've been in a lot of the places in Cochise County. Uh, there's towns uh-huh. There's towns like McNeil and Alfreda and Pierce and Dragoon. Right. Uh, uh-huh. You know, Dragoon especially. Uh, Wilcox at the time was a big city. Um, in theory, it wasn't as big as Tombstone or Tucson, but Wilcox was right. a town. You had Bisbee, which was a mining town. Uh, Douglas, uh-huh. which was way, way down on the uh, Mexican border, Mexican, New Mexico, Arizona border, but there was large swaths of open land where you saw nobody for days, or and you got into Sulphur Valley, Sulphur Springs Valley, and you you know, you're working on huge ranches like the Hooker Ranch with Sierra Bonita, massive ranches. Um, exactly. And so you have these these times that create certain things and certain elements which today would be bad, but to, at that time was normal. Absolutely, and others understood it. I mean, you had, uh, you had uh, it was like two groups. You have one of urban men that are accustomed to city ordinances, law, and protocol, and then the other are frontier pioneers of the open range accustomed to governing themselves by principles alone. And we find that uh, only the shooting is over, you know. The whole thing uh, can be examined over and over again, who was justified and who wasn't. But uh, the circumstances are a lot different than today. You can't, uh, you know, lawmen of the time period operating in a town like Tombstone, a frontier town, they're not governed by all the rules and regulations that that lawmen today have. They've got to make their own decision. It's up to them how they're going to handle it. And, uh, you know, unless they do something that's really extreme, uh, there, there are no consequences. So the, the, po- the prosecution has two witnesses, and, and I, I kind of, there's a, there's a third witness that 
came into your book. Oh, there's a bunch. There's a yeah, bunch. There's a bunch. But there was a third that was odd. So the two women are Victorian women, and obviously one steps away from the window. Another one is in her shop. She steps away from the door. The prosecution doesn't do anything with because they're both women. They're the Victorian era, uh, you know, and women aren't looked on as, as an equal like they are today. But a man, exactly. but a man is now in the picture, and he he pops in as a witness. And and the, it's going to sound the craziest thing. When I read your book, he popped in out of nowhere. Yes, Mister Sills. <laughs> so let's talk about him, and why okay. a man that has a witness, a witness, where even if you blow off the two ladies and just make them don't exist. You have a man who actually sees some things, and they don't do anything with him either. Well, they they can't they can't do anything with him because uh, this man uh, he comes into town, and we don't know exactly when. He tells us he came in the day before this happened, and then he says, "No, he came in the day it happened." Uh, he turns out to be in every little spot where something takes place. He sees it all throughout the day. How he does this, I don't know. And uh, he he's there to defend um, Doc Holliday and the Earth Brothers. And so um, he talks about this. For example, uh, they ask him, well, why did he come to town? He never answers. Um, and he, they ask him where he stayed. He says he stayed at a bed and breakfast. Uh, a boarding house. We call it a bed and breakfast today, but a boarding house, uh, down by the Wells Fargo Corrals. Um, however, he stayed there, he says, 10 days, but he can't tell you the name of it. Uh, he can't tell you who the owner is. Can you believe it? Um, he can't, uh, he, he says he never ever discussed what he observed, uh, on the day of the gunfight with anyone. Uh, in the boarding house, so when you sat down to a meal every day, you know that everybody in that building, that's all they were talking about today, and yet he said he never discussed And he goes on like this, and it's just fascinating, because the man is just so unbelievable. And then the, um, uh, the defense lawyer, when he does put him on, on the stand, he gets into like a 10-minute discussion with him about his background working for the railroad, and he starts asking, oh, did you know so-and-so, and I used to know this man, and did you ever work with this man? And the judge does not intervene. He lets him go on with this silly uh, thing where they're having uh, a reminiscence about uh, previous uh, people they've known. And the whole thing is so ridiculous, and you wonder what is going on here. Well, he's remembering what he wants to remember. The way I see yes. it, I mean, he's he doesn't remember the the events and of everything that happened that day. I mean, the things that happened that day should be clear in his mind, as you know, as clear as you know, uh, ice water. I mean, it should be clear, perfectly clear. Mm-hmm. And yes, nothing. but they're not, because when they ask him, uh, when he is asked to describe certain things, for example, he describes uh, the ranchers going across Allen Street into the alley of the O.K. Corral, 
and uh, he, he, he describes the, the men, and uh, he says they were all walking. And he said, there's no horses? They said, no, they didn't have any horses. Well, other witnesses described Billy Clanton was riding his horse, and Frank McLowry was leading his horse. So both men had horses, yet this man claims that he stood there and he fed only four or five feet from them, and there were no horses. So you know he's lying, and yet he was never challenged on that. And there's a number of other things that he did that were very similar, and he was never challenged. The defense, uh, or I should say the prosecution, never got up and, and challenged him. And so his, his testimony was accepted, and it supported the Earth story. So from in this, the, state, the whole thing is as crooked as a dog's hind leg. <laughs> pretty, and I love the way you say that. And again, that's those are opinions. So if anybody gets upset, oh, that's she's full of crap. These, yeah. are, these are our opinions. Um, what other witnesses were there that weren't openly discussed? That um, I don't remember if you covered all of them in your book. Um, that were there. Uh, well, there's quite a few. There was, we already talked about the two ladies. Mm-hmm. Uh, William Allen, I think, is the one who said he heard, and he, he, he had to go down and warn Billy to get out of town because right. he was in fear of Billy's life. Um, there was, um, oh, different ones who were, uh, there's a whole list of names, but I'd have to go describing each person to oh, you right. or you wouldn't know who they were. Yeah. But did they and all so, share the um, same story? Well, they, they remember they all had a different vantage point. Some were down the street, some were across in the building uh, where the Gerd building was, which is now the big parking lot over there on Fremont. Um, and some were uh, in a in a crowd of people on Allen Street, you know, listening to what was going on. All of them, um, the vast majority, I'd say there were six that I would say were definitely neutral. It did not have a dog in the fight in any way. Uh, there were, oh, maybe two or three that, um, um, maybe four that favored the earth. The rest of them, their stories supported, uh, the idea that the earth openly attacked these people when their hands were up. Because Billy Clanton, remember, Billy Clanton, the young boy, and he's only 19 or 20, a hard-working cowboy. But anyway, when the earth came up and said, put up your hands, he put out his hands in front of him with his, with his palms open, kind of like you do when you say stop, you know? He put out his hands in front of him, and he said, don't shoot me. I don't want to fight. And, and both hands were empty. Well, Morgan Earp shot him. There's several witnesses that testified to this. They saw him do it. And he hit him in the right hand, and it went in under his thumb and up his arm and completely shattered his wrist with his right hand. So Billy could not use his right hand to go for his gun. Now, Billy did have on a cross draw. Um, his, his gun was on the left side of him, with the handle being toward the right side so he could reach for it with the right hand. Um, cross draw was common with cowboys when they were working cattle and everything. 
because if you have it on your hip, on the, on the right hip, when you get on the horse, and you always get on the left side of a horse, that's how they're trained. At least at that time, now they do it different. But you get on the left side, and when you swing your leg and your hip up over the saddle, your leg's up in the air, the gun pops out of the holster, unless you have it strapped in, it's going to pop right out on the ground. So when a cowboy expects to be using uh, uh, his horse frequently and also wearing a gun, he's going to put it cross off. And that's how probably Frank McLaurie had his too. So Billy was cross-drawed, and he could now not reach for a gun with his right hand, which was totally smashed and unbelievably painful, no doubt. And so at the same time, he was shot in the lung. So he's hit in the chest, another shot in his hip, and he falls back against the building and starts to slide down it on his fanny. And he sits down, and as he sits down, He's trying to, with his left hand, he's trying to get this gun, which is now backwards to his hand, out of the holster so that he can shoot, which he finally does, and he fires off a couple of shots, one hitting uh, Virgil in the calf of his leg, and the other one going right across the back of Morgan. But here's the thing. Nobody described when he, they tried to say, the Earth tried to say that Billy had pulled out his gun and aimed at and was going to shoot him, and that's why he was shot. Uh, Billy's right hand was shot, and yet not one witness who observed that saw his gun fly out of his hand or fall down or anything like that. There was no gun in his hand. But yet nobody ever asked when he's trying to get his pistol out of the holster, how did that gun get back in the holster? How did the gun get in the holster if they're claiming that Billy had pulled his gun and aimed it at Wyatt? Obviously, it never it never left the holster. So there's several witnesses that support that, and yet that is totally ignored by most writers and historians. So, and, and this is going to be so crazy, I, we, we talked about it, we've only got like eight minutes left. Okay. Mm-hmm. What happened? That we, we know that Spicer acquitted everybody. Um, we don't have a lot of time. We can explore it later. Right. What happened? What, what was the initial? Did, did the Earps just say, okay, they went back? To, did everybody go back to their daily lives? Um, actually, I know that there was... Actually, and uh-huh. Go ahead. What, like, what happened after the trial? Uh, well, after, after the hearing, and they were um, cleared by Spicer, the charges were dropped, um, I flat and tried again in, um, oh, I forget the name of the town out there by the river. He tried again you to have them, no, uh, the, uh, the other way. Charleston. Yeah, Charleston, that's it. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, he tried to have them charged there. And again, the thing was dropped because there was no additional testimony they claimed. And um, so I couldn't get them legally. Now, um, things went back to somewhat normal for a while. And then, of course, remember, Virgil was shot in December. Uh, and he was uh, badly wounded. 
and uh, in bad shape for a long time. And then uh, Morgan was shot and killed in the uh, saloon in March. And after that, Wyatt went on this uh, the shootout. But now they make it sound like he went and killed a bunch of people. He didn't. He went and killed Indian Charlie was one, and he killed uh, Stillwell in Tucson. But I and that go, was about it. I want to go back just real uh-huh. quickly while we have time. Sure. Okay. When the, the trial is over, they're acquitted, everything is over, the hearing there, uh, is, is over. In the movies, everything is portrayed as next day, next day, next day. There yeah, was a, there was a they're, big, they're, there was a long length of time after the hearing and the acquittal to when Virgil was shot, right? Yeah, yeah, he was shot in December. Remember the the uh, the hearing that we're talking about took place in November. The fight at the tail end of October. The hearing took up for the whole month of November. In December, uh, Virgil was shot, mm. and then in March, the following March, uh, Morgan was shot. Mm-hmm. And then there was this so-called vendetta ride, which wasn't nearly the big thing they make of it. And then the Earth completely left Tombstone territory in April of 82. But I think the thing for me is, is in a lot of people, is... It wasn't next day, next day. I mean, they they lived with each other. No. They saw each other in town. Um, yeah. They probably in fact, stayed away from each yeah. other um, as best they could. Uh, there's open discussion in your book. That it surprised me, and I never thought about it, which was the gun store where they would go and reload their ammunition at the at the store. You know, we never think about the Old West, like the, the cowboys are shooting off a gun. Like, where does the ammo come from? And I was surprised because you put that in your book several times, talking about how they all went to the same ammo store. So they were, they were still socializing, may not have been the best way, but they were still seeing each other periodically. Yes, in fact, uh, Wyatt, after this, uh, in, in this uh, time period, I think between, I'm not sure now, so don't quote me, uh, either between Virgil's attack and Morgan's attack, Wyatt um, put in a um, an advertisement in the newspaper asking Ike Clanton to meet him and could they um, uh, come to some kind of settlement. It's in my book, and I don't remember the exact wording, but I quoted it in my book. And he wanted to meet with Ike and, uh, you know, let's, uh, let's shake hands and call it a day. Because uh, things were pretty bad, and they were not popular anymore in Tombstone. And he did not want to leave Tombstone because he had hopes eventually of getting uh, either the marshal or sheriff's job. The sheriff's job was very lucrative. And he would have liked that, but he, he was not—he was not the makeup for it. But uh, so he tried to make peace with uh, Ike Platten. Of course, Ike wouldn't have anything to do with him. But um, that was one of the things that was interesting that went on. So all of this happens. They eventually leave. What happened to the town when they left Tomb- Tombstone? When the, when the Earps finally left, because. Like you said, Virgil Virgil accompanied Morgan's body back to Colton, California. And yes, he went back and stayed with his parents for a while until he right. recuperated. Nicholas and Virginia, they lived in San Bernardino. Morgan's body uh-huh. is in Hermosa, 
Gardens Cemetery in Colton, California. Virgil lived around the corner, actually lived walking distance from the cemetery where Morgan is buried. Mm-hmm. Um, but but Wyatt stayed behind. Um, uh, Wyatt, Wyatt was up in Colorado at first with um, Doc Holliday, and then Wyatt and Doc parted company, and I believe Wyatt went on to California from there, and I think it was uh, at that time when he connected up with Josie. Even though he had met her in, um, uh, in Tombstone, they had not established a close friendship. Mm-hmm. In Tombstone, they tried to make it sound like a big romance happened there, and, and it caused trouble between him and Bean. Bean had dropped her, and uh, she met Wyatt there, but they never developed anything in Tombstone. But he connected up with her again in, um, uh, not Los Angeles, I think San Francisco, I'm not sure. I think it's San And Francisco. Uh, that's when they, was it, was it? Okay, yeah, and so that's when they, um, cemented their relationship at that point. In fact, and then I, it was Alaska and the Yukon and different things. I, I just made a trip to Redwood City, and in oh. Redwood City, California, is, a, is uh-huh. a bar, actually a dance hall, called the Alhambra. And it was a place where Josephine acted and did performances at, and Wyatt actually it was one of his favorite watering holes. Yeah, the, the Alhambra... Uh-huh by horse or by wagon or car or whatever at that time period was a few hours south of San Francisco where he was living. But um, it's actually shown and reported historically that he went uh, quite a few times to the Alhambra to see her perform. Mm-hmm. When, <clears throat> when the Earps finally left Tombstone, Doc's gone, the brothers are out. I know that the, the burial at Boot Hill, all the stuff that went happened there. What happened to the town itself? Did it go back to its normal, or was the town... It just it, carried on. Was it able yes, to recuperate? it just carried on, and then... Pardon? Was it able to recuperate? Uh, yes, it's, you mean socially? Uh, yes, it, it did. I mean, uh, um, it, it was not something that hung on much longer once the hearing was over. And then there was... Um, uh, the, uh, the mines were beginning to fail. Uh, there were problems with the mines and everything. You know, life just went on mm-hmm. until the whole thing collapsed in 89, and then everybody left. So we are at 55 minutes. I don't know where it went. I hope it wasn't confusing, because I know when you get on this subject, sometimes you get jumping all over the place, you know? Well, I, I think we, we did jump a little bit, but we did come back and forth a little bit, and I think the le- listener will appreciate it. When we come back for other parts, and I'm going to try my best to, to talk Joyce into coming back for you know more and more of these because she's got so much to tell, um, and maybe you guys can convince Joyce too to, to come back and tell more. Um, when, Thank um, you. That would be very nice. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I completely thought I lost my train of thought. Uh, make sure that if you really want to find out about it and read her books, one is called uh, The Cochise County Cowboys. But the, the big one, if you really want to read about this, and it's a soft cover book, but it's written, it's in a large format, and it's, it's very handy, it's easy to put in a briefcase and take you with you when you travel. And it's Murdered on the Streets of Tombstone by Joyce Aros. And 
Joyce won't brag about it, but she's also a, an excellent artist. And um, almost all of the photos and pictures, in, actually not photos, but pictures, because there is one photo, but all the pictures are drawn by Joyce, and they're fantastic. And and it's really it's really a very well-written book. And again, it's her opinion based upon fact. Now, whether you agree or disagree, you know what, that's okay. There's a lot of people that love to agree to disagree with Joyce, and a lot of people told me, well, you're going to get a very opinionated article. Well, I knew that, or interview, and I knew that up front. So make sure if you want to read any of those two books or get them both, you go on gooseflats.com, G-O-O-S-E, flats, F-L-A-T-S.com, gooseflats.com, and you can find those books and buy them. Um, it, they're wonderful books to read. They're fantastic. The stories, the illustrations, everything about the book is exactly what you would want out of a history book about Tombstone and what happened in Cochise County. So, as always, I appreciate all of you so much that listen and subscribe uh, to my podcasts and my interviews. Um, uh, you know, as always, I tell everybody to please work safe, be safe, but also be kind to each other and be good humans. There's so much craziness that goes on in the world today. And just be kind to each other because you know what? We all live on the same dirt. We all breathe the same air and we all need to be good humans to each other. And with that, we're going to go ahead and call it uh, a day. This is part one, hopefully part one. There'll be multiple parts. Hopefully we can beg Joyce to come back. And uh, again, she is the author of Murdered on the Streets of Tombstone. Have a good day. Thank you very much.